Welcome to another episode of the Blossom of Thought podcast. I am your host, Bilonga Mbule. My guest today is Dr. Midolinville from Willis, Virginia, United States. He's a retired oncologist and author of the bestseller, Spiritual Pathway to Recovery from Addiction. Dr. Mido, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. Will you just uh, take us through your background so that people may know who you are and what you've been uh, doing with your life over the years? Because I can see you're a senior citizen of the U.S. of A. I um, was a child of the 60s. I was born in 1948, which makes me officially an old person. <laughs> so I'm 72, but I don't feel like I'm 72. I can see you're um, quite strong. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, being a, a child of the 60s, we experimented with all different kinds of drugs, marijuana, uh, LSD, a few other things as well. Um, uh, most people in there uh, do that in their late teens and early 20s. Uh, some of us, though, one out of 10 really can't stop. Once we get started, we have a very hard time stopping. Uh, I didn't do much in the way of drugs or alcohol during school. I just didn't have time or the inclination um, through, through undergraduate and medical school and my medical training. But I joined the faculty at, at, the, at a medical center in North Carolina. And we used to have these recruitment dinners where we would invite um, uh uh, doctors from other schools to come and see if they wanted to join us on the back. And my boss at that time was really into red wine, right? That was, as you, as you might say, it was part of the good life. And hadn't that been what we worked for all these years was to have part of the good life. And I found that, that a glass of wine sort of gave me the same buzz that pot did, right? And, and um, uh, I found that uh, a glass of wine with dinner was very nice. And the next thing I knew, I was drinking two glasses of wine at dinner. And before too much, very, before too very long, I was drinking a bottle of wine at dinner and stretching it out over the evening. And after a while, I was drinking two bottles of wine at, at dinner. I would open a bottle of red and let it breathe. And I would open a bottle of white and I would drink it while the red was breathing. And at the end, I was actually drinking maybe even more than that. And it, I combined it with other drugs. At that point in my life, some, a number of negative things had happened. And I was, was uh, uh, depressed and feeling terribly bad. And the world was beginning to collapse around me. And I could blot out my consciousness with the drugs and the alcohol. Um, it's, it's common for alcohol to come on very, uh, very slowly like that. It's like taking a step down a slippery slope. The next thing you know, you're, you're, you're in deep trouble. Um, it... Uh, turned out that my nurses actually intervened on me. I had a private practice in, and we treated pa patients with cancer and they realized there was something wrong. And at that point, my, uh, my, my uh, office was pretty much closed. We really, uh, I did, I fortunate to say, I really didn't treat patients while I was stoned, which is one good thing, I guess. And they realized that, that, that I was in trouble. And uh, one day they finally realized it was due to drugs and alcohol. And they said, Doc, go home. Um, we know what's wrong. Um, and, and I did. And they called the medical board uh, to come and evaluate me. And I was sure, I went home and I was sure that um, uh, I was going to go into the office the next morning and the medical police would be there and they'd put me in handcuffs and take me off to jail. And that'd be the end of my medical career. And I would lose my medical license and all the privileges and benefits that went with that. But it turns out there's a group called the PRN, the Physician Recovery Network, that operate with the medical board to try and rescue the impaired physician 
after all the time and effort that's gone into creating this professional, if there's any way to save him and put him back into practice, then that's the idea. They said, we're going to send you to detox. And then after that, you're going to go to a facility that's designed especially for physicians um, and knows how to treat their particular brand of addiction. Um, and and <clears throat> that's what happened. That's how I got here. Mm, you know, as you're speaking, I'm just thinking through, I'm trying to take note what you're saying. You know, it's, it's arousing certain questions. How did you know, these substance, I don't know whether I should call them substance abuse. How did that affect your medical education? Because uh, I will suppose those would somehow affect that. Well, I wasn't using um, while I was in school or while I was doing my fellowships. Uh, mm -hmm. It was only uh, after I had joined the faculty and actually had left the faculty and um, begun a private practice that the world began to collapse. And that's when uh, the wine uh, use really increased. Um, cocaine, that had been like a party favor at times, um, didn't seem to be a problem till all of a sudden it, it was. Mm. Uh, the guy that was supplying me with coke came in one, one afternoon and, and uh, I, we opened up this great big ounce of cocaine and um, uh, I offered him a line and he said, no, and he ripped it rips a syringe out of his pocket, uh, takes his belt off and, and ties up his arm and um, uh, injects himself with the cocaine. And he goes, that's pretty good. And he said, I think I'll have another. And he did, and it was gone. And my wife at the time was a nurse and I was of course practicing. And when you do oncology, you do everything, IV, uh, chemo, platelets, blood. You know, so you're, you're doing, you're dealing with sticking needles in things all the time. So it's just as common as as putting cream and sugar in your coffee. And, my, and, I, and I said, well, I would never do that. Well, never turned out to be too weak. And before I knew it, uh, I was shooting cocaine uh, on weekends. And then after a while, pretty much on a daily basis. You know, and and um, it, it became uh, the, the, the ruler of my life. It became my higher power. Medicine is interesting because it really, you really devote everything you have to it. You study nine, 10, 12 hours a day. You're in the hospital uh, uh, every day of the year. You work um, uh, 36 hours on, you get 18 hours off and you do this for a long, long time. So you basically sacrifice your family, your hobbies, all your outside interests to this to this God called medicine. Right? Mm -hmm. And if you'd ask me what my th three basic priorities in life were, I'd have to say my job, my job, my job. The <laughs> family was on the list, but God, well, he didn't make the cut. Okay. Um, so I was going to ask the question. So many people have had their families split apart. Families have been destroyed because of alcohol and other substances. The question I was going to ask was, how did your wife deal with this? Because obviously it means she was having less of use to your job, alcohol, and all these other substances. You cannot have sufficient attention for her when you are going through all what I've just mentioned. It turns out that as, as I got deeper into my addiction, I began to isolate more and more and more. I had uh, two young children at that time, and I think I saw them twice over the last year, even though I was supposed to see them every other weekend. I saw them twice over the last year. Uh, the woman I was married to at the time uh, ended up terribly depressed. And um, uh, uh, after that, we, we went our separate ways. Um, and it's, it's, it, it wasn't so bad for me because I was living in a town where most of my family was not. So I just simply just simply withdrew from contact with them. 
And um, you can well imagine what that does to two young children growing up or to, or to uh, the other members of my family. I, I basically shut them out because my, my higher powers now were Lady Cocaine and John Barleycorn. And they, like, like a, any good God, they would tolerate no other gods before them. And they wanted your entire devotion. And I quite worshiped at their altar. All right. Um, whatever they said, I did. And I was either using or I was waiting to use. How old are your children now? The children are doing much better. One of the things about recovery, uh, the program of recovery from addiction of any kind, is the need to, to reform these relationships again. Uh, one of my teachers called it repeopleization. Mm, repeopleization. Yeah. Getting to know the people that you kicked out of your life. Yes, right? yes. Um, and I've been able to reestablish contact with, with two of my uh, ex-wives and with all of my children. Uh, we all get along today. We talk to each other very often. We have uh, Christmases together. And so it's a, it's a completely changed environment. And I'm obviously a much happier and, um, well, just a happier guy. Do you have some regrets? One of the things that's important to do in changing, I mean, you really have to change everything about yourself. And one of the things that's absolutely essential is to drive all negativity from your mind. Mm -hmm. That includes um, resentments, anger, bigotry, misogyny, um, and all sorts of negative thinking. Like, what if? If only I'd done this. I should have done this. I could have done that. And holding on to regrets is another form of, of negativity that only makes me uh, want to use again. Oh, I feel so terribly bad. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, um, uh, I feel awful. Oh, poor me. Oh, poor me. Another drink. We see the pathway that it leads to. And I have to look. And I, I, one of the part, one of the important parts of recovery is I must make, I have to recognize what I did. I have to make amends to those that I harmed. Now, making a, an amend is not making an apology. If I stole a six pack of beer from the mini mart, I have to go back now, apologize for doing it, pay the man for the beer, but then I must change my behavior so I will never again commit that particular act. And that's an essential part of restoration. Change. Yeah, change. I want to go back to your medical career. You were taken uh, to a facility, physician recovery, uh, I forgot the last word. They helped you, so you got back on the run and you continued your medical practice. Well, you... They, I once well when the when the PRN showed up at my office, at, the gentleman asked me, "Do you have a problem?" If you'd asked me that any time in the last couple of years, I'd said, "No, no, I don't have a problem. Nothing wrong with me." You know, uh, I would deny anything that might have interfered with my using. But I had a moment of clarity all of a sudden. They said, "Do you have a problem?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "Do you want to take some kind of treatment?" Well, that was in 1997. And being in medical school in the 80s, essentially no time was devoted to the study of addiction or its treatment. So I had no idea what he was talking about. Truly, I did not. Mm. We, we learned all about the effects of alcohol on the liver, about cirrhosis, about its effect on other parts of the body, but nothing, absolutely nothing on the disease itself or how to treat it. So I had no idea what I was agreeing to. He says, you want to go now? I said, let's, let's do it. I said, can I, can I go home and pack a suitcase? He says, no, just get in the car. And a couple hours later, I found myself up at the state capitol um, at, the, at the county detox. And mm -hmm. I can remember going in and hearing these. It's, 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 a, it's a psychiatric ward, all right? It's part of the state mental hospital, um, mm -hmm. not to mince any words. And I remember 
hearing the sound of the big steel door clank shut behind me, clank locked, you know? And, and my initial reaction was relief that I had been isolated from the terrors of my life and the horror of, of, of how I lived each day. Um, detox has the function of allowing the drugs, the poisons and the toxins to drain out of your system, but it doesn't really address the underlying problems, right? A lot of people will leave detox and go to a halfway house or go to some other program, maybe, maybe to a recovery uh, house someplace. Um, for, the, for the physicians, because of their particular problems, there are only a few places in the country that are set up to handle that problem. The man who founded this, this center was an alcoholic himself, and he looked around for places to, to, to treat the physician, and there weren't any, so he made one. And since that, there's been a number of them across. One of the problems that's really kind of funny uh, about a, a doctor going, going to rehab is that it takes a month longer than everybody else because it takes that much time to realize you're not the doctor anymore. Now you're the patient. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a hard one. Yeah, it is a hard right. one. It takes a whole month to go, whoa, you know, I'm the one that's sick. Yeah, I understand uh, that from uh, the point of view of attorneys, I'm an attorney. So I'm just imagining you have another attorney representing you. Now you are the criminal. Somehow you've been, oh, you've been charged. I wouldn't say a criminal. You're just a suspect. The other attorney will do something that you will think, mm, oh, no ways. I think we should be doing it this way. So you find that you have a problem because you know you are an attorney too. So there will be that eco problem that you'll be facing. So I think I understand to some degree of what you mean when you tend to be a patient, when you've always been on the other side of the binary world. Well, addiction is a very democratic disease. We care whether you come from Africa or England. It's 10% across the world. It doesn't care what color your skin is. It doesn't care how much uh, money your daddy makes, what kind of car you drive or where you live. So that the people that were there were from all over the country and some from other parts of the world. Lawyers were there. Anybody that could afford the cost of country club rehab, it was very expensive uh, and they only took cash. Uh, by the time I got out, almost eight months later, I was basically broke, but I was sober. Right? If you're not sober, it doesn't matter how much money you make, you don't lose all of it. You'll end up under a bridge eventually or dead or in jail. But when I got out, I had 5,000 bucks in my car and my guitar. And that was enough to start over. Um, and uh, it's, it's completely uh, changed my life. I was reading, I think it's your LinkedIn profile. You say the problem is addiction. The answer is recovery. Let's talk about that. Let's well, talk about, um, obviously here, uh, we're speaking about the addiction as a disease. That's the problem. The first thing I believe whenever we are challenged, we must discover first the problem and admit that this is the problem and then find the solutions. So you are saying there is addiction, it's a disease. I want us to talk about how it is it has been divine, defined as it is, is. Talk about the principles or the spiritual principles say you can successfully use with your uh, other patients or people that you have met that are within the cycle of, of uh, those that you, you help recover from addiction. Um, the year that I was born, in 1948, the American Medical Association designated alcoholism as a disease. That really hasn't made an impact. It's a, addiction and alcoholism are a terrible stigma for many people doesn't bother me because I know who I am today. And I can tell you I'm an alcoholic and an addict, uh, but I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict. It's very common today to say, well, addiction is a choice. Well, it's not a choice. Um, using is a choice, 
but there is this invisible line that I cross over. When that happens, I no longer, I have lost the ability to choose. I, I can't, I can't um, uh, drink or use to any degree ever again. You can think of it like diabetes, right? Mm-hmm. Which is another chronic. In diabetes, I, I could inherit a tendency from my parents, but I, I, but I might never uh, actually develop the disease. And it doesn't matter how much sugar I eat, that won't make me a diabetic because the disease comes on all by itself, okay? And, and there's an invisible line that I cross over one day where the day before I could eat sugar and it was, didn't bother, I could eat cakes and pies and didn't bother my blood sugar. But once I'm over that line, if I eat, eat cakes and pies, my blood sugar is going through the roof, all right? I can never go back to being a non-diabetic. And if I treat this disease with, with diet and with medications for 20 years, the day that I start eating sugar again, the blood sugar goes right back up through the roof. The same thing, thing is true for addiction. There is this invisible line that I cross over at some point where one day I could use and drink whatever I wanted to as much as I wanted. But once across that line, that's no longer possible. Um, the, old, the old guys talk about a raisin can never go back to being a grape. And once I've changed, I can never go back to being a person that can use again. They talk about it having two components. One is uh, the craving, uh, the other is an allergy. Now those aren't terribly good terms, they're old, but they, but they communicate a principle. The idea is that um, for, for some reason, for some unknown reason, I'll get this incredible craving to have a drink or a drug or whatever. And I, cannot, I can no longer resist that. When it happens, I will not be happy until I've found a, found a, a bar or a, or a drug dealer or somebody. And that I think is hardwired in, that will never go away. No matter how well I treat my disease, that that craving, I call that the insanity of addiction because it's never going to leave and it's a completely insane sort of thought. Mm-hmm. Once Now, once the first drug goes in, what happens is that the allergy kicks in. Now, it's not an allergy in the sense of um, hay fever or something like that. What happens is once I cross that line, once I take the first drink, I cannot stop. I will drink until I run out of booze or whatever, or I pass out. And it's almost guaranteed. It doesn't, I know for a fact, that's what's going to happen. I know that I'll end up in jail. I know that I'll end up crashing my car or get, getting arrested, but I can't stop. The consequences of the using are of absolutely no concern to me. All right, that's the, those are the two terrible parts of the disease. And all the other stuff that happens uh, isolation from your family, losing your job, getting arrested, all that kind of stuff are simply consequences of using that is unchecked and is essentially uncontrollable once I'm over that line. Excuse me, before we go into the spiritual principles that you use to overcome or to treat this disease, my question is, have you explored what part of the, the mind, you know, that triggers addiction? Or you were talking about crossing the boundary, crossing the line. What is it that happens from a psychological or psychiatrical point of view? Because obviously Um, all change begins in the mind. That very change, it's changed by itself that you're a normal person. Now you cross a certain boundary, you become an addict. You enter into the zone of dis-ease. Because I understand the word to be dis-ease. So in other words, the body is not at ease for some reason. What part of the body 
or mind that triggers these disease. I mean, from a point of uh, the psychiatrist or the psychologist, whatsoever, mental scientist. Exactly. The, um, there are a number of character traits that that addicts and alcoholics, basically, they're all we're all addicts, and I and I use that term to include addicts and alcoholics because alcohol is just simply another drug, and the, the, the process is the same, and the treatment is the same. So they're really all the same disease. Um, it, you can see certain character traits in addicts uh, when they are in their full-blown addiction, and those traits will persist after they quit using. The, the most common trait is probably low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Our self-esteem is, and this is this is true long before the addiction actually takes hold. Mm-hmm. This is the base upon which it's built. Uh, we have terrible low self-esteem. No matter what, we always felt we weren't quite good enough. We never could make the mark. Um, and to, to overcome that, we developed a, an egomania where I must be really, really good. If, I, if you think I'm really smart, um, I'll, you'll like me. Um, if, if I can uh, sound like an expert, uh, maybe in my self-esteem will go up. It doesn't, um, it's actually fear that drives this low self-esteem. I'm afraid you're going to take something away from me. I'm afraid I'm not going to get what I want. But most importantly for the addict, I'm afraid that if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't like me, all right? Um, the other thing about the addict is that our hearts are simply too sensitive. We can't stand the pain of the world, okay? We start out as, as, uh, as the most honest, compassionate, kind people you would ever wanna meet. Um, and the change is, it becomes complete by the time we hit, hit the doors of, of rehab. I can remember uh, my, my brother died of leukemia when I was 15. And I remember feeling that I, it was like my heart was being literally ripped apart. It was terrible. Then almost exactly a year later, my father died of a heart attack. And I can remember then uh, thinking, well, I know all about this death and funeral stuff. I, I know what I'm supposed to do. But I didn't feel any pain. I didn't feel any pain at all. I was completely numb. My body, something about me had shut down my heart so that I no longer felt any pain. Lindell, you've had enough of this terrible stuff. You're not going to feel anymore. And what happens is in most people, the heart and the, and the mind, the ego are in some sort of balance. Right? The, the ego does, calcul- mind does calculations. It uh, uh, builds bridges across rivers. The heart, where it's where poetry um, uh, symphonies come from, and they're normally in a sort of balance. But when I shut the heart down um, so that I don't feel pain anymore, then the ego has control. All right? It runs pretty much everything from then on, and it's driven uh, by fear. Uh, it will do. It will try to control the world in order to feel comfortable inside. And arrogance um, uh, is common. Uh, my my desire to try to control everything around me is common, but it doesn't work. So I just become more and more unsatisfied. Uh, I get to a point where uh, I will do anything to change the way that I feel. Tell you a story about a young man named Philip. Uh, We were working at it. When I was in rehab, we would go to the local detoxes and speak with the people there. So we would see ourselves in them, basically. They brought Philip in one night. It was a really terrible Georgia night with thunderstorms. And he was about half naked with no shoes. And he was out of his mind. He was a he was a young black man. He was he was tall, uh, good looking, and he was he was muscled and they rippled, but he wasn't wasn't a wasn't a heavy guy, and they and he had gone to war for his country, uh, in the Middle East, 
and he'd come back with a monkey on his back. And he lived on the street shooting heroin. Right. So pull hard. Night. Yeah. Well, that's now. That's the story of uh, <laughs> Philip. Yeah, it's a true story too. They brought him in that night, and he was he was literally out of it. The next morning, in group session, he had a blanket pulled over his head, and he was very very angry, and nobody would talk to him. Second day in rehab, he came in. He had the blanket around his shoulders like an Indian chief or something, but still was very angry, and nobody would speak to him. The third day. The third day, his medicines had started to kick in. He didn't have a blanket at all. And he raised his hand and he says, my name is Philip. I have a feeling disease. I will do anything I can to change the way that I feel. And that's a really good definition for addiction. Um, we were unable to stand the pain and the hypocrisy of the world. So we tried to shut it out. We shut down our hearts. Um, and the more we did that, the more uh, we couldn't stand ourselves anymore, the more we started to lie, the more dishonesty became a part of our day. And a person who began with this wonderful, wonderful honesty lost all of it. At the end, um, lying was as easy as shooting up with coke. Right? I, would, I would tell you any story to keep you from discovering that I was using. I would deny my disease um, uh, as, as much as I could and, and denial, um, becomes a, a way to maintain my using. My ego will, will defend my using against any and all. Because we are trying to protect how we will feel if we are discovered that we are weak. If mm -hmm. we, um, in fact, it becomes a shield of avoiding exactly. being hurt because we are, as somebody once said, we are all tender inside. Yes, yes, really. very much so. And mm -hmm. maybe more so mm -hmm. in the alcoholic and the addict than, than other people. So by the time a person reaches rehab, we have thrown away all of our principles. I would, I will give up my principles. I will give up the, the principles that got me through medical school and drove me to become a physician if it gets in the way of my using. Okay. All of my moral values would have been tossed out. I will do anything. Uh, a young man I met in detox said, Lynn, you, you don't understand how bad this disease is. You will give your old lady to the dope man for a half a bag of dope and you will kill for a bag of dope and you will kill him for half a bag. Mm. That's true. There is this monster inside of us that, that no one really admits to. Once you're coked up and, and stoned up and out of your mind, you will kill somebody and not think twice about it. I have seen that monster inside of me and that frightened me so badly that the reason that I was willing to go to rehab was that I didn't ever want to see that monster come out of me again because he would kill somebody and it might be me. And I've talked to other folks and they've had the same experience with the, with the emotional clamp coming down and they've had the same experience with reaching the point where they would shoot you just, just for looking at you. So as you can see, everything that, that I thought I knew about how to live is wrong. So that the treatment then for addiction has to involve completely changing everything about me, how I think, how I behave, uh, how my belief system works. And so that the, 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 the problem is addiction. It is a disease, all right? You're right. You absolutely have to define what it is before you can do anything about it. And because of the denial, um, I'm not willing to do that until something forces me. For me, it was, it was um, Paul coming in that day and, and rescuing me, basically. For most of us, we have to reach some point, they call it a bottom, where we decide we just can't go on living like this anymore, and we become willing to do anything, absolutely anything, to, to change our lives. For most, of us, for most of us, it means 
hitting a point where it's either quit or die. I reached that point and I knew I was, I was living in a very expensive house, driving a brand new car with lots of money in the bank as, as doctors might. And I knew I was going to die chasing the dope man down a dark alley some night. And I didn't care. Some days I wanted passionately to quit. And some days I just didn't have the juice to make it even, even, even considered. So you actually become a slave of the dopamine. Yeah. Quite I will do whatever it says, but lady cocaine and John Barleycorn are my higher power. Now everybody has a higher power. Okay. Maybe, maybe my higher power is making money on the stock market. I'll do whatever it takes to make money. Maybe my higher power is being the best basketball player ever. And that and I'll do anything to, to reach that end. So we all have something that we that we worship and aspire to. And 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 for me it was medicine until it until it wasn't anymore. Oh, it's more of some leakly called here on earth. Not the higher power in terms of the power in the universe. The, when you connect with the universe, just more of just a, as far as the material world is concerned, our five, uh, I mean, the perception of the five senses, I, I think that's what you mean. I've had so many people in my life addicted to alcohol and drugs. When you ask them why they drink, why they started smoking, I've never received any sound answer, really, to be honest. A lot of them, they will give really no reason. Some of them, well, it's just peer pressure. I don't know if I... Most of us yeah. coming here really have no idea of what the disease is. I certainly did. Most of the other physicians did. But it requires a complete rearrangement of who I am, of what I believe, what I think, what I say, and how I am. The, the book, the other title, the part of the title of the book is A Spiritual Path. I don't know what spirituality is. Right? I don't know how the universe works. I can't balance my checkbook. I can't tell you how, how the universe was created. You know? My best definition for spirituality is how I relate to the universe and then how I behave in this world based on that relationship. If my higher power is money, it's all right to kick grandma out of her home as long as you made 50,000 bucks off of it. And it requires, well, one of the things they told me was that everything you think you know is wrong, not how to change a tire, or how to drive to Cleveland, but everything you know about how to how to behave in this world. And they said you you need a higher power of some kind. And I went, yeah, yeah, right. Because I was raised Southern Baptist and, and my grandpa would preach at you until your ears turned red. Mm -hmm. But I just when my brother Billy died, I, I suddenly realized I didn't believe any of that. So I kicked out that my father's religion, and of course that left a a, a, a hole. Uh, the, the position for God was open. I applied, and, you know, I, I, I got the job. And so I was my own God. I worship, uh, I didn't worship myself, but I decided how the world went and everything else. And obviously I wasn't very good at that. So how do I use this? Well, first of all, uh, in order to, um, uh, to change all these ideas, I have, to, I have to get rid of the old ones. I have to jettison all the old ideas that got me into trouble. Because if I don't, they'll just get me into trouble again. Right? Uh, one, of the, one of the ways to think about addiction is that I will blot out my consciousness with my drugs and alcohol so that the problems that I have won't bother me anymore. And there's no doubt that that's, that's a major component. So I have to relearn. I have to, uh, one of the processes is to realize who I am, what are my character defects, um, and it's really funny. Um, uh, you make a list of all the things that you've done wrong and you look at what are your defects that, that prompted you to do that. Um, and I did that. I mean, I knew what I had done. I knew what my character defects were. But then when I wrote it down on paper, uh, one of the things that was, was there for each of the things I had done wrong, being selfish was on that list. 
And when it's in black and white and funny, it's hard to ignore. And, and I had never thought, ever thought of myself as being selfish. So I had to look at, at what else, what's going on in my head. I had to get out, as we talked about, I have to get out all the things that I did before and, and go over them and make, make amends as best I could. Um, to, and I have to find forgiveness for myself. Unfortunately or fortunately, I can only find forgiveness when I am willing to forgive everyone in my life who harmed me, even if I only thought that they harmed me. I must, I must first forgive everybody else. And that's, that's a spiritual principle. It's right out of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And it's, out, it's in any, if you can look at Buddhism, you can look at Hinduism, you'll find the same principle. It's just structured throughout so, the universe. Um, yes, I think so. So They uh, said you got to find your own. How we enumerate clearly the spiritual principles to recovery, to treating addiction. So I understand that the first thing that you, yes. you advise and that you have done is self-discovery, asking yourself, who am I? So that's what we begin with. First principle I heard you mention was self-forgiveness. Was that correct? Because I'll be happy if we enumerate them clearly. These are the okay. principles that you, you propagate in your experience are helpful in overcoming addictions. That's actually the idea behind the book. Okay. But the first spiritual principle has to be honest. If I can't be honest with myself, mm. if I can't look at the um at the defects that i have honestly look at myself and see what i have become then nothing else is going to work if i lie to myself um uh none of the things that happen later this is, honesty is the foundation the stone um that that has to form the basis uh, and as i said we were, we reached a point of, of total dishonesty and and it's not just lying to somebody it's not stealing It's also hiding my feelings from somebody. I won't mm -hmm. tell you how I feel. I won't share my problems with anybody. But it's also um, uh, looking at the lies that I've told myself over time. If I tell myself the same lies long enough, I'll start to believe in myself. And those have to be rooted out. I have to look at, at the, I have to be honest that I have a disease. I have to be honest that I can't control it. I have to be honest and I need help. And that, that's that's the beginning. I was in group one day and the, and the counselor said, who are you? Because what, as you mentioned, one of the processes of, of recovery is to redefine yourself as a person. You get to start from scratch all over again. And he said, Lynn, who are you? And I said, well, I'm an oncologist. And he says, no, that's what you used to do. And I thought for a minute and I said, well, I'm a father and a son and a, a husband. He says, no, no, those are your relationships. He says, who are you? And I went, I don't know. I said, well, I'm a guitar player from Tennessee. And he says, no, no. And a friend of mine, Larry, took me aside after the, after the group. And he pulled me into, a, into an empty room. And he looked around, made sure nobody was there. And he closed the door. And he says, if you'll shut up, I'll tell you who you are. And I said, okay. And he said, you are a child of God. And your job in this life is to bring God's love into the world, okay? Now, they said you have to find your own higher power. Now, God is a word that really turns a lot of people off. So they use the term higher power so that you don't immediately just throw the book out the door. You know, a lot of people are turned off by that and they can't because of their background. Um, and they said you have to find a higher power. And they gave us a little worksheet to fill out. And I was looking at it uh, back in the apartment that night. And these two words popped into my head. And I, they were, it was a concept that I was not terribly familiar with. I'd only heard the words once before in my whole life. And it was simply unconditional love. If the universe is based on unconditional love, 
then how does that play out? Well, it means that, that um, I'm a ch- I am made in the image of the, the universe, so I am unconditional love. It means that, that uh, as a child of the universe, uh, uh, we are all brothers. Uh, no matter how I may look different, we are all, in fact, the same. And if I hurt you, I'm only hurting myself. The, I, I think that, that, that there is a flow of energy from the universe, however you want to call it, that comes into me through, through, through something in here and then goes out into the world. That's the basis for compassion, honesty, kindness, all those virtues that we gave up and that we ignored. When I use and I, and I, and I drink, I block that entrance way. And eventually I block it so completely that I am in absolute blackness and if God were to speak to me, I probably wouldn't be able to hear it. If anybody takes drugs, alcohol, and so they kind of like numb godly attributes of kindness, honesty, and, and other principles. Not I- just anybody. All right. Most people that go to a party, have a couple of drinks, they relax, and have a good time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the addict and alcoholic who is mm-hmm. consumed by their addiction and by their drug of choice. Oh, because they have great. completely blocked it out. I had a girlfriend once who had a, was in the program and had a hard time because she couldn't quite get it. And her, the last time she got drunk, she went to a bar and closed the place down and they poured her into a, into a taxi cab. And on the way home, she prayed and she said, God, does this mean we can't have a relationship now? And she got an answer. Every now and then you get an answer that, that's, that really shocks you. And she got an answer and it was simply no, but it makes it more difficult. So that by using, I essentially block the light and end up in total darkness. Right. So they talk about the sin for which they ha- there is no forgiveness. That used to you've heard that, right? That um, and that used to just scare me to death because I didn't know what it was. And then somebody said it's blaspheming, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. I said, how do you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? You know, God, I may do it and not know it. You know, well, the the Holy Spirit is that flow of love through me. And when I, I when my addiction has so overwhelmed me that I I deny everything that comes through there. And I am in total and absolute blackness, right? In total darkness. The message, the light can't get to me. I have, I have not committed this. I have, I am in a place where no forgiveness can reach me. Somebody has to reach out and, and jerk me by the collar to get me going. That is the sin for which there is no forgiveness, simply because I cannot be reached by that love coming through me. I have completely blocked it all out. That's when Paul showed up. That's when my nurses showed up. As you were saying this, I'm thinking about uh, what the master had taught. I think it's known all over where he said, no man can serve two masters. And it appears to me, you have that master that you are mm-hmm. serving. Yes. On the other hand, mm-hmm. since you cannot serve two masters at the same time, you cannot be committed to your family. You cannot be really committed to your professional life and really do well because you have got a real master that you worship. Exactly. And the other problem that we have is that we also worship the material world and all the goods that it brings because the fear drives us. I'm not going to get what I want. You're going to take away something that I have. Um, uh, we seek satisfaction outside of us because we don't have happiness within. Turns out you can't have happiness from anything outside. Um, I, I know because I tried and I did it really, really well. Let me tell you, uh, I went to Europe twice a year. I always drove a brand new car. Driving a new car is really cool at first, right? You have this new car, the girls like it. You look really, you know, you impress everybody at work. And then somebody takes a key and scratches your car. And then the first payment's due. And um, all of a sudden, it's not as, not, doesn't get you high anymore. 
you've lost your mind. Well, the second principle would be in, in part to realize I can't do this by myself. I have to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a rare occasion, somebody can certainly um, overcome this disease, um, uh, I, I suspect, uh, by themselves without any help. But for everybody I know, somebody had to reach out and help us. Somebody had to, had to, had to uh, uh, from their own experiences, realize that, that when they help somebody else, they help themselves more. And part of the reason I do this, go on podcasts, write the book, do the, do the other things, is that I'm trying to repay the debt that I owe to Paul and all those other people over the years, dozens and dozens who reached out to help me when I was literally dying and saved my life. So my job did is to pass it on to the next guy. Okay. Um, but finding a higher power, realizing that I can't do it by myself and I have to find something uh, that I can depend on when this, when this insanity arrives that says, wouldn't you like to have a glass of wine? <laughs> and when that happens, I have to be, because I can't do it myself. So I have to have something I can reach out to. Let me tell you another story. I got lots of stories. I had been sober about a year and I'd just gone to this really nice meeting uh, down in Jacksonville, Florida, where I was. And I came out, it was springtime, it was beautiful, wonderful day. And I'm walking down the street and there's a delicatessen down at the end of the block. I want to go down and get some sandwiches and take them home for lunch. Um, and as I was walking down the street, this voice comes in my ear and it goes, you can have a glass of wine while you wait. And I went, I can't drink a glass of wine. That'll get me in trouble. And then the voice says, they won't be able to smell it on your breath. And I'm like, holy shit. I know you can smell a wine on somebody's breath, but if the voice says it, it must be true. Now I know I'm in real trouble. I'm in trouble. I don't have a, a, a big book that I can refer to. I date myself when I tell you there weren't cell phones in that day. I just come from a meeting. I couldn't call my sponsor. What do you do? Well, at that point, the voice says, you can have two. <laughs> well, if I had two, I would drink everything they had and in that deli, every wine. And they would pull me into a cab when they closed down. I would have to face my family and go back to rehab and start all over again. And I thought, I really don't want to do that. And so the only thing I could think to do was to pray. All right. Um, and I prayed the, the serenity prayer, which is a common prayer that, that's used in AA and NA and other self-help groups. Oh, God, I thank you for giving me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Um, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And I finished, I was praying out loud, walking down the street with my eyes open, okay? And I was so frightened, still, I started again at the, at the, the beginning of the prayer. And by the time I got halfway through, I stopped because I couldn't remember why I was praying. I walked down the street, I got the sandwiches, and as I was checking out, I suddenly remembered what had happened on the street. And I laughed. I had to have something I could reach out to, this higher power, however I think about it, all right? It might be Jesus, it might be Krishna, it might be Muhammad, it might be this, this universal energy. It doesn't matter what. I have to have something that's stronger than me that I can reach out and grab. Yes, one of the things that was really astounding to me was to learn that prayer actually works. Now, I don't know what it is. I spent my life as a scientist doing research in the laboratory, okay? I did cancer research of many different kinds. That was really fun, I tell you. Um, I, 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 I lived in the laboratory. It was, it was just, I can't express to you how much. It's like being in summer camp, being paid to be in summer camp, right? Um, um, and I was really angry 
at the, the first uh, part of, of my rehab. They take away your chemical coping skills, but yet you haven't developed the non-chemical coping skills. And right, right, right on time, two to three weeks later, this terrible anger comes up that I can't control anymore. And it was so bad, my, my roommates took my car keys away. Somehow they knew that I was planning to drive out on the park on the railroad tracks and wait for the three, 309 to come by. Um, and then a guy showed up one night and he says, oh, you have a resentment. I said, well, yeah, I guess probably I do. And he says, I'm going to show you how to get rid of it. He says, I'm going to teach you this prayer. I said, stop, stop, stop. I, I don't know how to pray, and I'm not sure I even believe in God. And he says, it doesn't matter. Just do what I tell you. And, being, you know, and so I did. He said, here's the prayer. God, I thank you for taking away my resentment and replacing it with the faith that no matter what happens, everything will be all right. He says, do it once a day for, for 10 days and, and let me know what happens. Well, being a good alcoholic, if once a day is good, twice a day has got to be better, right? That's the thought pattern there. So I did it twice a day. And after a week, I suddenly realized that my resentment, which had filled my whole mind, had, had shrunk down to a very small piece. And it, it, it wasn't gone, but it was no longer directing my thinking and my behavior. Well, as a scientist, I was very excited about that, right? You do an experiment and it works. You immediately want to try it again and see if it works again, you know? Have you stumbled upon some, some truth, you know? And I tried it again, and it worked. And I tried it again, and it worked. It has been 23 years, and I have said that prayer tens of thousands of times, and every time it works. It's amazing. I was in a courtroom one day. I was innocent, of course, but nonetheless, I was there. And I, I'd never been in court before. And every time the bailiff coughed, I get this terrible fear. The judge would drop a pencil. I get this terrible fear come up. And I said, would say the prayer. God, I thank you for taking away my fear and replacing it with the faith that no matter what happens, everything's going to be all right. And I said that prayer 50 times, I'm sure, between 730 in the morning and one o'clock in the afternoon. The guy who was sitting next to me gave me a weird look and got up and walked away. But it worked every time. I've given it to people. And when, um, when they've done it, it's worked every time. I don't know of anything in this world that is that, um, that I can depend on, I can depend on that prayer. The other thing about the prayers, it's, well, see, uh, my faith, when I began to develop a faith, it, it was the faith that when I said this prayer, it was going to work. I don't know how prayers work. Is it some kind of electromagnetic field that I reach in and tap out to? Is it a higher power bending down to touch my personal life? Or is it just a part of how the universe is made? That the universe responds to the thoughts in my head and that that's really how it works. And that there's a better, there's less effective and more effective ways to pray. They call it scientific prayer. Um, if I've got meanness in my heart, it's not going to work. As Jesus said, if you've got, when you go to the altar, if you've got odd against your brother, go and fix it. Um, uh, gratitude is really important. I have to be thankful for what's happening. Um, uh, saying, uh, uh, when, when people say, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you say, in Jesus' name, amen, what it means to me is that I follow the principles of Jesus in all of my affairs. And if you don't, well, you're defeating yourself. Can you imagine being on, being holding a telephone up at God's house and somebody calls and says, God, I'm in trouble. God goes, yes, you are. Next, next, next caller. God, I'm broke. God says, well, certainly you are. So you've reaffirmed your, 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 your troubles rather than God. I thank you for not, not for um, giving me a Cadillac so I can go to an AA meeting tonight. No, but God, I thank you for helping me get to the meeting. And somebody will show up before I finish the prayer in my driveway. All right, because you've used it in a way that works. 
a lot of people say, well, I don't understand why God doesn't answer my prayers. And that's why you're doing it wrong. I, it, it's, a, it's a skill like playing basketball or, or uh, going, to, going to law school. Um, and the more I do it, the better I get at it. Mm. And, I, um, and that, that's where my faith comes from. And then I slowly built on that. If the universe is unconditional love, then um, God doesn't test me. He knows exactly who I am and exactly what I will do. He doesn't put these traps in my way to try to send me to hell. Um, and this is going to shock some people. Uh, and this is just me. Now, what works for me only works for me, for, for me. It won't work for anybody else. You have to find your own pathway, your mm -hmm. own way to, to find uh, how to live your life. Um, um, but the, obviously the principle, the universal principle, such as honesty and connecting to your higher power, those are universal. We, we are not just part of the universe. We are the universe because we are in exactly. it and escape it. So we yes. have to align with force of the universe and not run counter with it. So I think you don't mean that honesty, you know, prayer, forgiveness uh, worked for you. So it's not going to work for others because those are, are principles uh, of life. Those yeah. are laws of life. Okay. Yeah. You don't mean that they won't work for other people. But what you mean is that those principles, universal principles will work for you, but try find a way that works for you as you apply these principles. As I hear you speak about the solutions, I must find how this can work for me. Yes, exactly. If you shine light through a prism, you'll see all the different colors of the rainbow come out. And if you were to take the spiritual love that I'm talking about as it flows out of us and shine it through a spiritual prism, you would see honesty, kindness, compassion, charity, all those different of uh, uh, virtues that that we value uh, are the are the component features of, of that love. The other thing that's important, I think, is that spiritual truth is anywhere you find it. But the, the ideas of, of spirituality go back as, as long as as mankind, the shepherds watching their flocks uh, in the fields by night. Hmm. And if you and in my studies. Um, uh, I had, I had read the Bhagavad Gita, which is the Hindu text. And in rehab, I thought, well, I'll go back and look at that, you know, and I got a copy and I looked at it and I opened up the first page. And what I, what I read was the spiritual pathway is one of attraction rather than promotion, which is actually read straight out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was dumbfounded because here the same truth that was written in 1939 was active 2,500 years ago. I think that every religion starts out with one, one human being having this incredible incitement of the universe, and he tells somebody else, and the story gets diluted and diluted over and over again until somebody comes in and says, well, I can use this to gain power over, my, over, my, uh, over the people around me. But I think the spiritual truth in each religion is the same. And if you, the further you look back, you can find the same ideas everywhere. If you look for the golden rule, the Christians like to think that that belongs to them. But in fact, you can find it in every religion. Uh, the Buddha said it, Krishna said it, um, uh, Lao Tse said it. Um, and those principles are everywhere the same. I think you can actually look at a Steven Spielberg movie. All right. And almost any of his movies has a, is wrapped around some spiritual principle. You know, the, the singer Sting, all right? He has a song called The Only Living Englishman in New York. And the chorus is, be yourself, no matter what they say. 
be yourself, no matter what they say. And that's mm -hmm. so important. He said it, said it a third time. Be yourself, no matter what they say. So you can find this truth anywhere once you develop the eyes. Somebody said if um, uh, that all God made all women beautiful, if only I have the eyes to see it. Well, if I have these, in, in finding who I am and developing these new ways of thinking, I develop new eyes for looking at the world. And the world is perfect just the way it is, if only I have the eyes to see it. One of the, one of the problems is, is living in, uh, 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 leaving in, in dualities, good and bad, up and down, hot and cold. Um, and you can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where uh, Adam and Eve were in perfect harmony. They lived in a oneness, and then they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. They grabbed the hold of the concept of dualities, and all of a sudden they were naked. All of a sudden they were afraid, and that and that if I remove dualities from my thinking, that's part of the negative thinking that has to go. Then all of a sudden uh, things make a lot more sense. My higher power doesn't test me. Um, Jesus said, it is not my father's will that even one of these little ones should be left behind. Okay. Do you have any children? Do you have any children? Oh, no. No, I okay. don't. Yet. I have four children. All right. So you can four. imagine that in the, in the standard Christian world, half of them would go to hell, half of them would go to heaven. Well, now, I line my four children up here at the Christmas table, Christmas dinner table. Which two am I sending to hell? Well, I'm not going to send any of them to hell because I love them all. And if I, the imperfect father, love my children this much, how much more must my father in heaven love us all? There is no hell. There, there is no devil. And in fact, if you really carry it to the extreme, there is no death. Um, Jesus said, heaven is within you. Um, heaven is at hand. We are, we are in the in the kingdom of heaven standing here. And when I pray to my Father, which art in heaven, it is in me and in the world around me. All right. Mm -hmm. And if you once you open your eyes, these these sayings that, that people um, throw at you without really understanding their meaning suddenly take on this new depth of meaning. And then all of a sudden you find it everywhere you look. And you, when I find as a scientist, if I, if three different labs report the same result, I tend to believe that that, that what they, what they discovered is real. And if I, and when I found these same truths everywhere that I look, I began to believe that they're real. And then when I act upon these truths and I get the results every time, then I know for me that they're real. So when it comes to religions, uh, they are all various interpretation of what one thing means and what the other means. Is now you have uh, spoken about what means when Jesus Christ was saying, the kingdom is within you. The world is perfect, just the way that it is. But I don't yeah, have Yeah, yeah. Of course, I've got a different belief, but uh, I... I I, I know others will also come with a third alternative. Sure. That's the thing about religion. If you are done with the spiritual principles of recovery from addiction, I would like us to conclude with mental science. You also talk about learning how to control thoughts in our heads. I think that's a critical point. That's it the is. fountain. If the fountain is clean, the stream will be fine. But if the fountain is dirty, everything that proceeds from there will be dead and for those who are around me. Those are, that's a very profound thought. And I, and I, I uh, uh, see what you're saying and I absolutely agree with it. The first thing that, that, you, that I had to do, now this is me, was to realize that I'm not my body. I am something more than my body. Mm -hmm. um, I am not my mind. People think I'm the thoughts in my head. 
I think, therefore I am. But I, I, don't, I don't go with that. What I would say is I am, therefore I think. Thinking is a function of the brain. Uh, breathing is the function of, of the lungs. Making urine is the function of the kidneys. I am not my breath. I am not my urine. I am not the thoughts in my head. Okay, thoughts are just that. They are thoughts. They are not commands. They are not commandments. I'm not responsible for a thought. The first thought that pops up into my head, I'm responsible for what I do with it. Okay, uh, I don't know. It's imagine your mind as a view screen and this thought comes popping up. I look at it and before I would just respond automatically. My friend Wayne would, would, would give me a hard time, cuss me out and I'd slap him upside the head. Well, now a thought comes up, I get to look at it. And I say, hmm, I wonder why he said that. And I turn and walk away, all right? I no longer have to respond reflexively. So the, human brain, they, they, the human brain, they say, can, is so constructed, it can only hold one thought at a time. So I can, and, and, uh, I can decide what to do with it. If, if it's something I don't like, if it's something that's against these principles I'm developing, I can pitch it out. If it's something that I wanna hold on to, I can grab it and hold it to myself. And I can use it as a driving force. If that thought is, let's get some cocaine and find a couple of willing ladies, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to obsess on that and increasingly it's going to be in my hand. But if, if I hold only, if I have a garden, like you were saying, and I go out and plant weeds in it, I'm going to get weeds. I'm not going to get any vegetables. All right. And the mind is just like that. It's also like a garbage can. Whatever I put into it, that's what I'm going to get out of it. All right. The thought comes up. And I can decide what to do with it. Now that requires constant vigilance of the thoughts as they come in and not simply responding to the thoughts reflexively. That's why I have to get rid of all the negativity as it comes in. The would-haves, the should-haves, the could-haves, the if-only, um, uh, uh, bigotry, misogyny, um, judging other people is a very big one. I have to quit judging other people. Um, and all of those, uh, Judge not, for by what measure you meet it at, it shall be, it shall be given back to you. There's uh, a powerful tool for, for clearing the, the brain. And then when, when something good comes in, what happens is the more I keep these good thoughts in my head, the more good thoughts come and the more they, they become how I think, they become how I speak and they become how I act. Um, it took me, when I realized that, I, I consciously paid attention to every thought and it took me six months before I got negativity from, from running my life to being a very small part over in the corner that I could recognize what to do with it. I'm not responsible for the thought that pops in my head. I'm responsible for what I do with it. And um, That's I confirmed to think in a, in a new and different way. That's very profound. Mm -hmm. But we are responsible what we do with those thoughts. Yes. We are one, of the, one of the lessons I had to learn, we talked about completely ignoring the consequences of our addiction. Today, I know clearly that um, uh, I am responsible for all of my actions, whatever they are. How huh? do you find happiness in life? You, ah, you, that's the key. <laughs> you say that you, you, you escape the chains yes, of your past and find it, happiness in life. Happiness is whole, quite an interesting subject and people search for happiness in all arenas, in all places, and you find that they're still empty most of the times, but it seems what like I came, you have a, What I came to realize was that you cannot find happiness outside, like buying a new car. I get really excited, I get a buzz from the new car, but then I lose my buzz. There is nothing outside that will provide uh, permanent happiness. 
Um, yeah, I could be making $300,000 a year uh, as a stockbroker, but I'm afraid if, if I take a vacation, somebody's going to get my job. I could be married to the most beautiful, wonderful woman in the world. But if I can't get over the fact that I'm afraid somebody's going to steal her away from me, I'm not going to be happy. There is nothing in the outside world that is permanent or can provide happiness. But the end pathway, the end result and the goal of recovery is to find serenity. All right. Serenity is an old term that they use, like a serenity prayer. It's an old term that, that, that mystics used long ago. And it's roughly equivalent to nirvana, heaven on earth, um, the peace that passeth understanding. It's a state of mind where the past no longer bothers me. It's not a weight around my neck. The future um, uh, is not a fear that I worry something bad is going to happen tomorrow because I have the faith today that no matter what happens, everything's going to turn out all right. I, uh, the thoughts in my head don't make me crazy. I live in the moment. I'm not worried about any of those other things. And I pay attention to what I'm doing right now. Um, I try not to let my mind drift too much. That's what mindfulness is. That's what meditation helps with. And it's a state of mind where I am at peace with the world. Uh, I am filled with joy, with love. And um, uh, sometimes I can let people take me out of my serenity. Sometimes I watch the news on TV and it tries really hard to take me out of my serenity. So what I have to do is I limit myself to five minutes of news and I turn it off, right? Um, because I'm, I worked too hard for over 20 years to find the state of serenity. You're not going to take me out. You can burn down my house, but that's just an outside thing. You can, you can steal my car. You can slander my name. doesn't make a difference. You cannot take me out of my serenity. And the thing that I discovered for me is that happiness follows serenity like a little puppy dog. And mm. that's where you get happiness. And that happiness can't be destroyed. I can't, I can't lose it if the stock market crashes. I can't lose it if, if uh, my girlfriend leaves me. Uh, I can't lose it if I get fired because it comes from inside. And like that prayer, uh, once, you, once you see it, once you get a feeling of it, I can remember when I was in rehab, I had one afternoon where I felt it and then it was gone. And then a month or two later, I felt it for a whole day, and then it was gone. And then a few months later, I got it for like almost a week, and then it was gone. And then it started coming back more and more often as I delved more and more deeply in controlling my thoughts and, and tending the garden uh, of, of my soul, if you will. Uh, it's here almost all the time now. Um, I'm the happiest I have ever been in my life. I make far less money. I don't need it anymore. The things that are important to me. Um, are things of the heart and things of the mind and not what's outside. And that's the key. Happiness is the object and design of our existence. So said one man. And it should be the mm. end thereof if we choose the part that leads to it. Thank you so much, Dr. Mido. It's been a great conversation. I wish we can go on and do those who have the challenge of addiction. How can they access you? How can they find the book? Um, the book is entitled A Spiritual Pathway to Recovery from Addiction. Um, a Physician's Journey or Journal of Discovery. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any place you can find the book. Um, I have a website that talks about the book and the principles there. It's called Spiritual Pathway to Recovery. I have another website that's devoted entirely to the disease of addiction and how it can be treated. The website is called The Answer is Recovery. Mm -hmm. I'm on social media in many places as Lindell uh, Meadows. Um, People call me, only call me Lindell, generally if they're mad at me, but um, I go by Lind, but that's what I figured for the book. I ought to put the whole thing down. So it's pretty easy to find. The Spiritual Pathway to Recovery from Addiction 
the answer is recovery. Thank you so much, Dr. Mito. I really appreciate you having me. I've really enjoyed talking with you and um, learning from you.